Our first reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, which is on page 810 in the Bibles we provide. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of Christ. Our second reading is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, which is on page 975 in the Bibles we provide. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The word of our Lord. And we come to our text this morning for study uh, from Malachi chapter 2. Ordinarily, we begin with Old Testament lessons, but because we're studying Malachi, I want it read last, close to the moment when we'll begin looking at it. Uh, Just a word for those of you who weren't here uh, last week. Uh, We are studying this final book in the Old Testament as our preparation for Christmas. Uh, We're studying the four chapters of Malachi, the four Sundays in Advent, and you may well ask, why in the world would you do that? Isn't this book a bit of a downer? Uh, Malachi comes at the end of the Christian Bible, uh, or the Christian Old Testament, but it doesn't come at the end of the Jewish Bible, as I noted last week. Uh, In the Hebrew Scriptures, the prophets come in the middle after the the Torah, the books of Moses, then uh, you have the prophets, and then you have what are called the writings. And, you know, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, things of that sort. And the writings end 
with the Chronicles, and the final note of the Chronicles that ends the Hebrew Scripture is the Edict of Cyprus, the, the king of, of Cyrus, the king of Persia, telling the people that they may return to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity and rebuild their temple. So, of course, the Jewish people wanted that to be the final cry. Wherever they traveled, wherever they were, they wanted to know that the final word of God to them was, you may go home, you may go back, you may rebuild. But as the church put together its Bible and took the Hebrew Scriptures, the church wanted to end the Hebrew Scriptures on the final prophecy which pointed across the 400 years from uh, the silence at the end of Scripture to the coming of Christ. And Malachi ends with the prophecy that there will come another Elijah who will prepare for the great and mighty day of the Lord. And so the church wanted that as the final word pointing to the coming of John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah and prepared the way for the day of the Lord inaugurated by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I wanted to pick this, because the church said this is the thing that should point to the coming of Christ. So we're preparing for that. Let's do it through Malachi. Chapter 2 now. We come to verse 1 of chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I'll curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. And abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? 
And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The word of the Lord. Back toward the end of uh, the 1990s, I think it was 1998, uh, Christians were wonderfully encouraged and heartened to hear that popular Gothic author Anne Rice, best known for her Vampire Chronicles, had returned to the Catholic faith of her childhood and embraced the gospel of Christ and, in fact, spent the next few years researching carefully and writing a number of very interesting uh, books about Jesus. And then after another decade, another word came, another news flash, and Anne Rice said that she was leaving the church in order to follow Jesus. What she had experienced in the church did not match what she was studying of Jesus. And she finally came to the conclusion that she was too distracted by church stuff and needed to just focus on following Jesus. When I read that, I was reminded uh, of Gandhi's famous statement that he, he was drawn to Christ, but not to Christians. Uh, that he saw Jesus as the supreme picture of everything God wanted a person to be and loved his teaching, thought the Sermon on the Mount was the most perfect expression of the life that honored God, but couldn't figure out why people who bore his name seemed to have so little connection to him. And of course, we've, in the last few years, uh, been told that uh, uh, the Big Barna study on faith uh, shows that in America the fastest growing group or demographic is the so-called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who marked, as far as religious affiliation, none. Not because most people are becoming atheists. Students of that study have been quick to point out that most of the nuns profess to believe in God. The majority profess to believe that Jesus is God's son, profess to pray and worship, but they're saying no more church, please. Why is that? What has happened to make us, at least in the public perception, not the place where one will be most inclined to meet and follow Jesus? Perhaps we're very much like the Israelites whom Malachi was addressing. As we said a moment ago, the Hebrew scriptures end with Cyrus's edict releasing the Jews from Babylonian captivity. The Persians had conquered uh, Babylon and Cyrus said, you may go back and build the temple, take what you need from the treasury. And so under, Malachi, uh, under Nehemiah, 
They'd returned. They'd built the city, rebuilt the walls, and then under Ezra had built the temple there on the mount. And yet, unlike the tabernacle in the wilderness and unlike Solomon's temple, which when they were completed were, <coughs> excuse me, were so filled with the glory of God that the priests could not for a time even enter and serve. When they finished Ezra's temple, nothing happened. And so the priests just turned around and did small group Bible studies. You can read about it. They basically went out and taught the people the word because there was no visible Shekinah glory. The presence of God that had always marked Israel was not there. And that's the background to the complaint of the people of Malachi's day. They say, we've done what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be God's people. And we were set free. We came back. We rebuilt the city. We built the temple. We offer the sacrifices, and yet when we pray, when we go in, when we weep before the Lord, where is he? There's no sense that he's present here. And don't we read of the great times in the history of the church? We read of those times in the early church when people were coming in great numbers and the entire Roman Empire was being turned upside down by a whole new worldview. We read of times of revival and renewal culminating in the great uh, 16th century reformation that was culture transforming for so much of Europe and consequently through the great mission movement so much of the world. We read of the awakenings, times of revival, when entire communities were transformed and God would do in a matter of a few weeks what ordinarily would take a lifetime of ministry to see happen. Lives transformed. And don't we sometimes say, you know, I mean, the building's built, it's decorated for Christmas. We sang three hymns for Pete's sake. We give our offerings. We're sitting here on a rainy morning. We got up and we came. And Lord, my life's a disaster, and I've been praying, where are you? Why don't things happen in my life the way that I've heard that they happen for other people. Do you not love me the way that you love others? And that was how the question opened, and the prophet answered in chapter 1 by saying, on behalf of God, I have loved you. And then he began to show that, in fact, the problem was that the people had not loved God in return. They had not responded in gratitude and obedience to the God's love for them. They were not living as the people of God. They were going through the motions. They were doing what had to be done, but there was no evidence that it was any deeper than a superficial checking of boxes and doing what seemed to have to be done. And as we get to chapter 2, the prophet turns to the priests who are supposed to be leading the people and he says, the problem is really with you. Let's, let's get right down to it. And I bring these charges against you, you priests. And you might well be saying, okay, you've tried to show me the relevance of the, of the little book of Nehemiah, but I'm not an Israelite priest, thank you. So what does chapter 2 have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with us. 
because in the New Testament, the priesthood is extended to all of God's people. Peter, in his first letter, says, you are a royal priesthood. John, in the Revelation, says you are a kingdom of priests for our God. Luther, more than any of the reformers, captured that in his phrase, the priesthood of all believers. So this just may be a word that we need to hear this morning in answer to those cries of our hearts in the times and places where we say, Lord, where are you? I have wet your altar with my tears. Where are you? Three questions that we can pose to this chapter that get, I think, at the heart of what the prophet is putting before the priests of Israel. The first question is, have we truly honored God's name? Where do I get that? Look again at the opening. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send these things upon you. So the first question they should have immediately asked and that we should ask is, do I honor God's name really? Not talking about going through the motions here. Well, first we have to ask, what does that even mean? What does it mean to honor his name? His name, well, does it just mean don't curse, don't use it as a curse? Well, surely that. But the name in the ancient world represented the person. When you spoke of someone's name, you were speaking of their power, their authority, their character, even in the invoking of the name, seeking to bring their presence to you. So the name was the person. That's a, a name is always a sign pointing to someone. And he's saying, you haven't honored me. And then if we ask, but what's he talking about? I mean, is there some specific thing? There is an illusion here that you, you, you shouldn't miss. If you're going to read the Scriptures, read them slowly enough that you're constantly asking questions. Uh, I'm all for reading through the Bible in a year, but not if it means you read real quickly and check it off and go on, because the key is to read slowly enough to catch things. And if you're reading this, perhaps even as we were reading it, and you heard of God's covenant with the priests, his covenant with Levi, a covenant of, of promise, covenant of peace. What's he talking about? Whenever you have those things or whenever you have a, a, a little quotation from another part of Scripture, I've said before, see those as computer links, as something that you click to, to go to another place to find out the context. And the context of this you haven't honored me charge is Numbers 25, where one of the priests, Phineas, was given from God the covenant of peace and was told the priesthood of Levi will pass through you and your family. Why? Do you remember? Real quickly, if, if you've read Numbers recently, um, just before that, the Israelites have gone through the wilderness. They're there now on the plains of Moab, right by the Jordan. They don't have far to go. Uh, Moses is still alive, but he's not going to be alive much longer. And the king, King Balak, 
uh, had seen them coming, known how they defeated people, and he wanted to stop them. So he got a prophet named Balaam and said, I will pay you if you'll curse those people. Curse them for me. And so Balaam said, I can't say anything God doesn't tell me to say, and you know the story. Three times Balaam asked the Lord for permission to curse the people of Israel, and three times he ended up standing up over them and blessing them in the name of the Lord. And Balak is just tearing his garment. I didn't pay you to bless them, I paid you to curse them. But we find out later that it was actually Balaam the prophet who told him, I know how you can really mess them up. Get some of the good-looking Midianite women to go down there in their camp. Those guys have been in the wilderness a long time. And just see what happens. And that's what they did. The Moabites got the Midianites to go in. And we read that the Israel played the whore with Moab, and specifically with the Midianite women, and ended up turning to, the, to their gods and worshiping them. What started in immorality quickly turned to idolatry, and Israel turned away from the Lord. And Moses, in despair, not knowing what to do to stop this, tells people to go through the camp and just put to death those that are doing this, and suddenly a, a plague breaks out. And I mean, it's just all hell breaks out in the camp. And the people realize what they've done, and they begin to repent and to weep before the Lord. And it looks like a revival's going to come. And right into the middle of the weeping and wailing and asking God to forgive, strolls an Israelite guy named Zimri with kind of the chief uh, gal of the, the Midianites. She was the daughter of the head of the house of Midian. Her name was Cosby. And they just walk right through the assembly as people are weeping and crying out to God for forgiveness and go right over to Zimri's tent and go inside to be together. And Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, a priest, is so outraged that they would dishonor God in this way that he takes up his spear and goes to the tent and pulls back the flap and drives the spear through both of their bodies as they lie there on the tent floor. Not your typical Sunday school lesson. I don't know if Veggie Tales has done that one. <laughs> and of course, to us, who stand millennia past the life-transforming gospel of Christ that calls on us not to behave that way even to our enemies. We're horrified, but what God said was, Phineas has honored me. He has been jealous for my honor with my own jealousy. And therefore, I make with him a covenant of peace and a perpetual priesthood, the priesthood given Levi, is going to pass now through the family of Phineas. That's what he's talking about. He is saying, you priests have allowed in the camp that same kind of thing. You have permitted that same kind of behavior 
oh, sure, everybody goes to worship, everybody gives their gifts, but then they go out and do exactly what they want to do. And you in that have dishonored my name. You have not recognized that I called you from all the nations in order that you might be a light to those nations and show, show them who I am. And instead, you've acted just like the nations. And so, you think I'm going to honor your prayers and your service and your worship? I'll wipe dung. They translate it gently for us. Uh, but the language of the Scripture is pretty strong on what he says he's going to wipe all over the priest's faces because of the way that they've behaved. And brothers and sisters, we dare not ever hear the message of grace in a way that we think gives us a free pass to do whatever we want. Because our call is the same. We are to be a light to the nations. People who know the church of Jesus Christ should not end up by saying, I'm attracted to this Christ they talk about, but when I look at them, I see no resemblance. And I'm not talking about suddenly raising false, fundamentalist, sinless I'm talking about what the Scriptures teach. I'm talking about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount saying, not one jot, not one tittle of the law will pass away until all has been accomplished. Don't diminish my law because it's a picture of what it looks like to love God and to love each other. The law is not an oppressive burden to be born. It is to be the expression of the life of the Holy Spirit living in us, the Holy Spirit that has now been poured out on us so that we have an opportunity that the old covenant believers didn't have. We have the power of the risen, conquering Christ living within us. And the world has every right to expect us not to be perfect, but to be on a trajectory toward change, a glad, joyful obedience to God's truth. And then he digs it deeper and says, the problem is you were the ones entrusted with God's Word, and you haven't even lived it or taught it. Begins that in verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he's the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi. So I make you despised and abased before the people. In other words, you have neither taught faithfully nor lived the truth. How do we do this? I've said it many times, but we always need to resist. We're the children of Greek philosophical education, that dualism. We still have it. We still think that you can believe lots of things that have no effect on you. The biblical view of things, the Jewish view of reality was that the way you know what you believe is not simply by sitting down and trying to figure things out. It's by saying, what do I do? How do I live? That's the real indicator of what I believe. I may talk a good game. I may say I love God's law, but if I don't seek to keep God's law, and if my heart is not broken when I break his law, then I don't believe his law at all. And I certainly don't love it. 
because I still really think that his way doesn't lead to life, that it's rather something that will make me miss life. If I don't do this, all the things I'm going to miss. This is where the fun is. If you believe that, you don't yet believe in the word of the Lord. And so he says, you priests, you go through the motions, you do all this stuff, but you don't teach them the word, and you're not even living it yourself. And so you are causing people to stumble whom you should be helping to stand and to follow. And then the third question brings us to the heart of the matter that was already painfully evident when we realized that he was pointing back in the question of honoring God's, or, or honoring God's name, pointing back to the Moabite conquest uh, of Israel through immorality. You have a sense of where he's going. Have we honored God's name? Have we gone, honored God's word? He brings it home by saying, have you honored God's family? He starts this in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And he speaks of the kings, Judah, the whole kingly group as having been just faithless and corrupt. You know the history of Israel how, and Judah, how the kings in the end corrupted the people and led them away from the Lord. So he's saying to Levi, you priests, you need to call them back. You need to teach the word. You need to be in blood earnest, just as Phineas was in blood earnest. Let me just say as an aside, what do we do with that? I mean, do we just bracket it and say, yeah, you know, he speared them. How do I honor God? Let me see. (laughs) Whom do I need to shoot this week? But no. Paul tells us you are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Our warfare is with principalities and powers and with our own flesh. What do I do as far as the spearing of Zimri and Cosby? Those were the names of the two there in the tent. I have to look at my own heart. I said to you before, imagine if I went to uh, Marianne coming back from one of my trips and said, you know, it just, I'm so honored that you've stayed with me almost 45 years. We've been married. You've put up with me. You've loved me. And I want you to know what that means to me. I, I want you to know that when I'm out on the road traveling, I'm probably faithful to you 85, 90% of the time. <laughs> Would she say, boy, you know, 85, 90, that's great. I'm moved. She'd be reaching for the spear. She would expect me to burn that city to the ground, to grab that baby by the heels and dash its head on the rocks, to put the spear through that whole part of my life. That's what we're to do with these texts. We see the warfare of the Old Testament where they are showing how much they honored God And we are to say, where am I totally wimping out? Where am I going to the Lord of life and and covering his altar with tears and yet at best, 85, 90% of the time, I'm faithful to him, maybe not that. Because I keep trying to turn him back into a little household idol 
try to make him bail like Moab worship, one that I can bring out when I'm in trouble and put up and say, my family and I have needs right now. I've got to talk to you about this, Lord. I'll fast, I'll pray, I'll bring an offering. What do I need to do? Because we're in trouble. Instead of living in the light of the glory of the one who made us for himself and realizing that all that I am, all that I have, is to be for his honor, his glory, his name. That's what the word teaches us. It is the great narrative. People in our day don't trust great narratives. They think they're just instruments of power to oppress. But the narrative we've been given in Scripture sets people free. No matter what the circumstances of their lives, it comes to set us free and to give us life and to call us to faithfulness within the family of God. And so he ends with the illustration of, that links it back to Numbers 25. He says, you have permitted within my family, people who don't worship me, don't care for me, don't love me. You've intermarried with the nations with no thought of the covenant to which I've called you and of the kinds of children that I want you to present to me, as parents did in the services this morning. And he says, you've not only intermarried with others, you've been unfaithful to the wife of your youth. You wet the altar with tears and say, why don't you answer my prayers? And you're not even faithful to your own wives. Don't you know that I was the witness at your wedding? Don't you know that it is my spirit? I gave you a portion of my spirit to bind a man and a woman together in marriage. I, the Lord, am the one who does this. And you've scorned it and been faithless to one another. And some of you have even divorced your wives and in doing so have covered yourselves with violence. In that patriarchal culture, women didn't have the options they have now of going out getting work or you know, pursuing a life. They had to be part of a man's household to be protected, even to have food to eat. So you divorce your wife and throw her out. If she doesn't have a father or brother who will take her in, she's either going to be a beggar or a prostitute. And he says, you are covering yourself with violence. And yet even if, thank God, women have much better options today, it's still an awful act of violence to spouse and children, to rip a family to pieces because of our own lusts and corrupt desires. So, Why did Anne Rice run away from the church? Why do so many today turn away? Some, surely, because they don't want to be confronted and convicted with God's word. Some because they don't want to follow in his ways, of course. But I think many, because they've tried to taste and see and have said, this is no different than the world out there. Why get up early on a rainy Sunday if it's just more of the same? More selfish people living selfish lives, doing to one another what everybody else does. So what's the good news in the message? The good news is this. Jesus Christ has come into the world to reconcile us to the Father, to put to death 
a rebellion and brokenness in himself to fulfill Israel's calling, humanity's calling, to be the light of the world. And when he had done that and conquered over death, he said to those gathered round him, receive the Holy Spirit as the Father sent me, even so I send you. And in this Advent season, can we not hear him saying, even as I came once and am coming again, the incarnation continues through you and you and you and you through me. We are Christ's body. We are charged with showing the world as well as telling the world who he is. We're his only plan. Let that high calling and incredible privilege and the wonder of his provision for us to fulfill it joyfully draw your heart on toward him in this Advent season of preparation.